Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Welcome to another of our episodes in which we ask some of our panellists to tell us about the things that they've been reading, thinking, doing as we prepare for the summer. Well, the summer is already on us and this is a chance for you to hear about some of the things that we think you might like to read and might be interested in. My name is Aaron Rapport. I am the resident U.S. foreign policy expert. So sometimes on the podcast, I get to discuss things which explode, which is shockingly a lot of what U.S. foreign policy revolves around either blowing things up or trying to prevent things from being blown up. My name is Colby Smith. I've been working as an intern on the Talking Politics podcast this last year. I'm currently an MPhil student focusing on currency politics. I'm John Norton. I'm an engineer by background. And for about 20 years, I've been working on the long-term impact of the internet on society. That's what I do. Uh, Though, for the most part, I'm reduced to talking about more mundane things like number of votes cast and poll numbers. I've written a blog for a long time. And I suppose the reason I still am obsessed with the blogosphere rather than social media is because I don't like the idea of public discourse being conducted entirely in privately owned online spaces. Hi, I'm Maha Rafiatal, and I come on here to talk about American politics sometimes. What I mostly work on um, is corporations as political actors. The first book is actually a little bit of a busman's holiday since it's very serious and it's about political philosophy. It's a book by Gerald Gauss called The Tyranny of the Ideal and I would describe it as a so far a less polemical version of Karl Popper's work on the open society but over the last year or so I've really been thinking a lot about kind of totalizing visions of politics if you will. So this urge to transcend the everyday and to kind of decry all the injustices and imperfections we see in society and move to something else whether that's something else is a socialist ideal or a kind of nostalgic return to some great American past that didn't ever actually exist. But both of them have a tendency to kind of, I think, suppress accurate analysis of events in favor of a political agenda when the facts and evidence seem to contradict what people perceive as the best arc of history towards whatever their ideal might be. And so Gauss's book has been very interesting in that regard and that it kind of gives a more formal voice to some of these ideas I've been playing around with in my own head for a while and really kind of ideas I've been playing around with ever since I read a a different book a long time ago by a guy named Phil Tetlock about expert political judgment and Tetlock talks about how there are taking from Isaiah Berlin, there are there are hedgehogs who know one big thing, right? So the one big thing you know is that capitalism is evil and is the source of all trials and tribulations in the world, or the one big thing you know is that there's liberal elitist class who's trying to elevate cultural identity politics at the expense of white men and so on and so forth, and that's the source of all evil in the world. Um, and then there are foxes who know many little things, and they don't necessarily have the vision thing, but they are pragmatists who are 
quite good at analyzing what I would call mid-level problems and kind of slowly, incrementally stepping their way towards progress, if you want to call it that. And so I've been thinking about these issues for a long time, and they just also kind of, uh, this kind of perspective, I think, just comports with my general personal temperament. Right now, I'm focused a lot on writing about the renminbi and other currency politics in China. So two books that I've read that have been uh, pretty excellent overviews and very accessible in terms of what China has done to date are The People's Money by Paola Subachi of the Chatham House and Gaining Currency by S. Swar Prasad of Cornell University. These two books, what makes them um, so interesting is that they provide this very accessible understanding of China's currency policies to date and the challenges that they currently face. One of the big things that both my dissertation focuses on and as well as these two books highlight is the role that politics and institutional limitations play in demarcating China's and the renminbi's trajectory in the global economy. One of my favorite blogs is by an economist called Tyler Kahn. His blog is called Marginal Revolution. He's clearly a very good economist, but what I like about him is that he's an amazing polymath with very wide interests. I've just looked at today's post, for example, and one of them is entitled, Does the UK need a second glorious revolution? Question mark. He's an unmissable date for me in the morning. Another person I read a lot, and I value very highly, is someone that most non-geeks have never heard of. Uh, He's a a guy called Macy Seglowski, and I think he's probably the most interesting geek writing today. He's a Polish software engineer, and in recent times, for example, he has been trying to persuade Silicon Valley geeks that if Donald Trump comes looking for help to build databases and technological tools for identifying Muslims and expelling them from the United States, then they shouldn't cooperate. And that's quite interesting. Political mobilization in geek circles is something quite rare. Every so often, he releases essays about the current state of cyberspace and the tech industry. And they're almost always stunningly elegant and startling in their perceptiveness. I was just thinking this morning, for example, he has an essay entitled Build a Better Monster about what happens when the tools that Google and Facebook and Twitter have built for their own commercial use, what happens when these tools bleed into our politics? And that's a very interesting subject at the moment. And he also has a really funny essay, which is taking the mickey out of all this hype about superintelligent machines. So he's a wonderful presence, and I feel there should be an alert on the, on the net every time he publishes something. One book in particular that I'm interested in reading is The Man Who Knew, which is about Alan Greenspan. It's a biography by Sebastian Malaby, and it traces both his early years in education and how he ascended to become the chairman of the Federal Reserve from 1987 to 2006. It's really fascinating as it relates to the financial crisis because One of Greenspan's focuses was inflation targeting, and what the financial crisis showed is that that might not be the best approach. It also talks about how central banking is inherently a political undertaking, so I'm interested to read that. And on a more fun level, 
I've recently become really interested in Margaret Atwood after reading The Handmaid's Tale and watching the series. So I just finished The Blind Assassin, which was fantastic, and tons of twists and turns, so it keeps you on the edge of your seat until the very end. And I just started reading Penelopead, which is the Odyssey as told from Penelope's perspective. And then finally, there's a man called Dave Weiner, who is actually the founder of blogging in the sense that he produced the first blogging software. Not only did he invent blogging, but actually he he co-invented RSS, the syndication system that most bloggers use. And he also played a big role in the invention of podcasting. So he's kind of like an elder statesman of the net. He's a cranky geek. He's a great software developer. He is politically a liberal and he is the most prolific blogger on the planet. And when you go to him in the morning, you'll find blog posts about King Donald. You'll find blog posts about baseball. You'll find blog posts about JavaScript. And you'll find stuff about cycling in New York. He argues, and I agree with him, that the most important thing we could do at the moment is have a reboot of the, of the blogosphere. In other words, to get the public sphere out of these privately owned public spaces like Facebook and into where they belong, which is in the open internet. His blog is called scripting.com. It's very easy to remember. This is Talking Politics. My name is David Runciman. Uh, the other book is, uh, it's funny because I was just kind of decrying nostalgia, but the other book I'm reading right now is called Down to the Last Pitch, which is a book about the 1991 Baseball World Series between the Minnesota Twins, which is my team, uh, and the Atlanta Braves, which uh, the author Tim Wendell calls the greatest World Series of all time. So that's, of course, very flattering to, to my sensibilities as well. We're, we're picking up a theme here. I tend to pick books that I think comport with my worldview or my, uh, my sentiments pretty precisely. And so I was 11 years old when the Twins won the World Series. It went to seven games. The seventh game of the World Series was pitched by Jack Morris, and he went all the way into extra innings, into the 10th inning, pitching a shutout. And it really was a fantastic performance. The Twins should have lost game six, but Kirby Puckett made a fantastic catch and also hit a home run to win the game. And it was really the last phenomenal thing any team near and dear to my heart did, which is sad because it happened before Bill Clinton was president. It's a nice little pick-me-up if you've been depressed about things going on in the world, at least if you're me. It's probably not the best pick-me-up if you're an Atlanta Braves fan because it recalls, you know, even though it was a great series, how close you got and and didn't quite make it. And there's things like Kent Herbeck lifting uh, one of your players off of first base, probably illegally, and and tagging them out uh, and and things like that. That'll make your blood boil. But uh, for me, it's a nice little balm uh, that I I can read at night to, you know, kind of lull me to to sleep and make me remember the good old days back before I could, you know, drive or tie my shoes properly on the first try. This year, what I've been looking forward to is a book by a sociologist called Mark Granovetter from Harvard. He's probably the most cited sociologist in the world. I had my eyes opened by an article he wrote many, many years ago, I think in 1976, on the importance of weak ties in which he argued that the most important people in a social network are not those with whom you have the strongest bonds, but strangely those with whom you have weak links, um, because they're the ones who actually enable ideas, news, job offers and everything else to escape from the echo chamber of your own close friends. And his new book is just out, and it's called Society and Economy. And I think it's it's the culmination of a, of a life thinking about the relationship between how people are 
and how economies work. I think it's the next Piketty. That's my hunch. And that's just a guess, and I'm hoping I'm right. So over the summer, I am working on some slightly more fun reading, which is related to my work in a way in that whenever I describe the types of towns that I go to where companies control everything, people tell me that it sounds like a science fiction novel. And so I am working through some science fiction novels that have something to do with that and hoping to try and bring them in maybe in the conclusion of you know the project that I'm working on now. So I'm reading Dave Eggers' The Circle which I think they've made a movie out of now with Emma Watson and Tom Hanks in it. And that is some mashup of Facebook and Google where the surveillance capacity that the company has is way beyond what they have now, but probably where we're headed. And the Emma Watson character of the movie in the book is a young woman who goes to work for this company and starts to become very disturbed by what she sees. And then it's a question about is she so far in that she can't actually extricate herself from it. I'm also reading a book called Company Town by Madeline Ashby, who is a Canadian science fiction author. And I think it won like all of the Canadian book awards last year. And I'm sure it'll be out in the UK soon enough, which is a future in Canada where there's an offshore oil rig where a company controls not only the oil rig, but the entire town of all the employees and their families and all the services that serve them and the company is family owned and the son who's supposed to inherit the company is facing assassination threats and it's sort of a dark kind of crime thriller set in this dystopian future where the company is the state. Um, So that's sort of, that's what passes for recreational reading in my house. Uh, Thoughts on the last year. Uh, So um, the last year I think has been fairly humbling in that it does go to show you that the models that we have for analyzing politics are <laughs> uh, very hard to validate until a major event comes along to really test them. And a lot of our models didn't meet that test. Now, the interesting thing, I think, in the last year is that there have actually been people who have emerged that were kind of voices in the wilderness saying that uh, kind of populist upheaval was in the offing. And not only that, it's not that impressive to say something like, oh, Trump will win, because really you almost have a coin flip's chance of being right once uh, you have a two-horse race. But there are some people who are getting this right well ahead of time, and they were specifically getting it right for the right reasons. They were saying, you know, which factors were going to drive, say, Trump to victory. In particular, was a professor at the University of Washington named Christian Parker, who, again, not only did he flip a coin and say, aha, my crystal ball tells me Trump is going to win, but he really did analyze a a lot of the reasons why Trump was going to emerge as a popular frontrunner in the Republican primaries, uh, not least issues of race. I've been reading this one guy, uh, David Runciman, in the London Review of Books, and he can come off a little full of himself, but also he has some glimpses of insight here and there, too. So... Do follow us on Twitter at tppodcast underscore, and we will be tweeting links to everything that's been mentioned on this week's episode. Do join us for the summer for some special guests and some new presenters, and if anything happens, for another panel to discuss what's going on. And we'll be back in the autumn with a relaunch, a new partner, and lots of exciting guests. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Listeners may remember that back in the inauguration episode, David told us that he had had to brush up on the 19th century in America and that it was all full of people in places that he hadn't heard of. Here's what he said. So this is really a kind of breakneck race through 
200 plus years of history. So I'm just going to summarize about 100 and something years. Should we so, call this section the 19th century for dummies? It's not even for dummies because I'm one of the dummies. So I had to read this to work out what was going on. So I said to Maha before we started, by the presidents no one's ever heard of. And she said, you've never heard of them because you didn't have to study them at school. Because I said Polk and Taylor and Franklin Pierce. So I read these. So this was pretty inaccurate, and I think Aaron and I both took a little umbrage to David's characterization of 19th century American history. So we thought we'd turn the table on ourselves and see uh, how much British history from that period we actually know or remember. And I would just like to add that I promise I did not do any studying for this. So any ignorance that you hear is perfectly genuine. Uh, as it should be. So I'll start out and say that first, you guys came into our country in 1812, right? And uh, Dolly Madison had to save all these paintings that you were trying to burn in the White House. That wasn't very kind. And that all ended at the Battle of New Orleans, except actually the War of 1812 ended before the Battle of New Orleans, but communication was so slow at the time that nobody actually knew what the heck was going on. Uh, and this was all while you were fighting Napoleon, so that well, bullied you. And the BBC tells me that Tom Hardy was somehow central to these negotiations, but I still haven't worked out how. So you're fighting Napoleon, and then there was the Vienna Congress, which, you know, you were very much involved in, Castlereagh and all that stuff. And then there was some peace until you get to Crimea, and that was a whole mess with the Ottoman Empire crumbling up and Russia and the charge of the Light Brigade. And somehow the Corn Laws were involved, I'm sure. Yeah, and somewhere, uh, I, I seem to remember, um, somewhere in between there was cholera through most of London. I think there was Gladstone a Gladstone was prime minister forever. That's the only prime minister you for just, all of the 19th century that I know. Me. Right, meanwhile, <laughs> for some reason, Queen Victoria is making people very nervous about masturbation, I think, <laughs> and, and their bodies in general. Um, and uh, she was also queen for a very long time. Forever. Forever. forever for, simply forever. forever. And forever. poor Prince Albert had been dead for quite some time. Uh, yes. So she wore black the whole time. And she deposited her children in all of Europe's countries so that we would go on to have extremely incestuous wars for the next 50 years. <laughs> the then, first great corporate bailout happened in India in the 19th century. Did it? Yes, and it happened because, this is perfect, this is totally perfect, the East India Company decided to get some new guns that required you to lick animal fat in order to insert the bullets into them. And they thought it was smart not to tell any of the workers whether it was pork fat or beef fat because then nobody could be angry. And the result was that everybody got angry. And then in the 1880s, there was another one of these European congresses where the great imperial powers got together and divided divided up Africa so that wouldn't be a source of imperial attention and that's how World War One didn't happen because <laughs> um, that worked out swimmingly for everybody. Oh, Charles Dickens wrote uh, some stuff that we now see Muppets play uh, every yeah, Christmas. Yeah, and, and my impression of that was that, you know, I mean, birth records have to have been terribly kept all the way through the 19th century because all the street urchins turn out to be princes and all the princes turn out to be street urchins. And, and plenty of young girls were living wholesome lives, working in mills, losing fingers. And um, I mean, I understand the Industrial Revolution wasn't so great. And actually, this was a great period for the United States because we were engaging in massive amounts of intellectual property theft, which is how we became such a great economy. So thank you for that. We were China before China was China. The end. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. 
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.